by way of background, um, Anna is a lecturer in criminology at the University of Edinburgh uh, in her School of Law. Her research interests are in the sociology of criminal justice policy and practice, and particularly in the areas of youth justice and policing. Um, her current research is an ethnography of policy making in youth justice. Is this policy making at the Youth Justice Board? Yeah, it well? is, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'll let Anna say more about herself as she goes along. Um, <laughs> thank you. Anna Swell. Well, thank you. It's really, really lovely to be here. Um, and this is a talk which is about the problems of being a researcher, but also the problems of being an academic researcher. And I'll tell you a little bit about why I think that's problematic. I'm really delighted to be here because um, of the world-class research that's done here and to talk to this particular audience, because these are... Some of the things at the moment which are worrying me about the research that I've been doing and some of the research that I do, and they're early thoughts, and I think what I'm going to talk about are problems, but I'd really like to know what you think as well. Um, so I'm going to try and talk for um, stop talking at a point which gives us enough time to have a bit of discussion at the end. Um, I'm going to talk today about so a series of problems which are about doing ethnography. And the reason I'm thinking about them at the moment is that I'm currently writing on the data which I generated during this um, large um, research project about the police, which I conducted with Tim Newburn and Janet Foster at LSE some years ago. And this was, as Neela said, part of um, a major study. It was a two-year study on the impact of the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry on policing in England and Wales, which I'm sure you all know about. Um, the inquiry, as I'm sure you know, was published in 1999, and it was very, it was damning about the police service, particularly the Metropolitan Police Service, but police services more widely. And it said that um, the uh, police investigation into Stephen Lawrence's murder had failed for three reasons. It said the Metropolitan Police were incompetent. It said there's been a failure of leadership. And it um, most notoriously identified a broader problem of institutional racism. And what it meant by that was not that individual officers are racist, um, but that the routine practices and structures and assumptions on which the policing, policing was based could be or were, were actually um, unwittingly or indirectly discriminatory. Now, what we found, our, probably our, our most important finding in a way, was that that was misunderstood by everybody at every rank in every police service that we did our research and it was understood to mean um, they thought institutional racism meant um, that individual officers were racist. And as a result, the inquiry um, generated a huge amount of anger and resentment. It was hugely powerful for that reason, actually. And it had an enormous immediate impact inside the police and beyond. So it's still a kind of iconic finding. Now, our research was um, commissioned on behalf of the Home Office... And it took place five years after the inquiry was published. And our brief was simply, has anything changed as a result of this inquiry, which had this massive impact? And the fieldwork I'm going to talk about took place between 2002 to 2004, largely ethnographic observational research. And the final report was published in 2005 by the Home Office. And our conclusion in a nutshell was, well, actually not much has changed largely because of this misunderstanding of what the inquiry was trying to actually get at, that most of the changes had been really superficial. Now, looking at this data now, I can see something which I think is quite an interesting methodological issue, which is that if you return to data after quite a long pause away from it, you see things that you simply couldn't see at the time. And I think our analysis was, at best, incomplete and very possibly wrong. 
But also, um, rereading the field notes from the research, I can see a series of methodological problems, which I didn't see at the time, which are actually troubling me now. And these, as I said, are early thoughts, and I'm not sure if this is the right term, but I think they're clustered around this idea of authenticity. And this is a term which, as many of you will know, is used in the methodological literature, and it's an important concept in ethnography because of the peculiarity of what ethnographers do, which is that a key characteristic is you put yourself in a setting for an extended period of time. And the idea is that if you immerse yourself in that context, to some extent you're going to uncover and understand the unspoken informal rules that direct what people do, that structure the life in that context, partly through observing them as they happen, but also partly through yourself taking part in them. So that kind of research, the nature, nature of the data then, is not open to test in the same sort of ways that other sorts of data, survey data, for example, is. So the sorts of tools that you use in other sorts of research, like reliability and validity, don't apply. They're for different sorts of epistemological questions. So instead, as ethnographers, what we try and do is make our accounts appear trustworthy or authentic. In other words, why are these accounts to be trusted? Why this interpretation rather than any other? And there's a number of ways that people use to do that, and there's two which I want to talk about today. The first thing you try and do as an ethnographer, generally, is we try and blend in. We try and get accepted into a setting somehow. So we try and get an understanding of what this life is like, the people we're researching, but also we need to have access to the activities that they do and to some part, some extent, take part in them. And one of the brilliant ethnography sort of textbooks by John Van Marnen, um, who also talks about policing a lot, Tales of the Field, and he says this explicitly. He says, field work of an ethnographic kind is authentic to the degree it approximates the stranger stepping into a culturally alien community to become an active part of the face-to-face relationships in that community. So in other words, as far as you do that, you're doing authentic ethnography. The second thing that researchers do is you reflect on it. So you try and show awareness of how your position or your personal history um, may have shaped what you find. So it's a common feature of ethnographic writing that researchers write about their experience of doing the research. They write things which sometimes call confessional tales, and this today is partly mine. So what this means is that accounts of doing research are particularly available in ethnography. Now, I want to talk about three problems today, if I have time which I think are related to this idea of authenticity in ethnography. And the first problem is really this assumption that what we want to do is blend in and become accepted into a setting. Now, in ethnographic writing, what people do is talk about this in terms of the challenges of doing this, of getting accepted. So in other words, how do you do it? What barriers do you encounter and what do those mean? And they can be really useful sources of information about um, the thing you're trying to research. But today, really, what I want to consider is should we be trying to do this in the first place when if you what happens if you are successfully accepted into a setting I think that can be very ethically complicated and should this always be an aim of ethnographic research but there's a bigger question I think which is worrying me at the moment which is well what do we mean by authenticity and this is of course a hugely imprecise inelastic term Judgments about what makes something authentic or feel trustworthy are hugely subjective and necessarily culturally structured. Now, underlying these accounts of confessional tales that we have in criminological writing, it seems to me that there's a number of unspoken, informal, normative assumptions about what makes good ethnographic research in criminology. 
And I am just wondering that while ethnography sets out to uncover informal rules and the sorts of areas that we're researching, I think it's possible that our own occupation as academic researchers is also structured by these informal rules, which we're perhaps not quite so good at exploring. And I think they've got some troubling implications. Now, my field notes from this project are quite interesting in looking at this, because this was my first postdoctoral job. I was working with senior colleagues, and I was trying to make a good impression. I was trying to be a good researcher. And reading these notes now, I think what I'm seeing is an account of a researcher um, trying to pass not just into a police setting, but actually into an academic one as well. So in other words, some of the problems of authenticity I want to talk about is actually what it is to become authentically academic, an authentic police researcher. And the third problem I want to talk about is part of this, which is the way that good researchers, as we judge them, handle emotion. And I think there's some quite strong connections with the way that Yvonne has been thinking about this, actually. And I think there's something very odd here in ethnographic writing, in that ethnography is essentially an emotional enterprise. Again, John Van Marnen says, you know, field workers learn to move among strangers while holding themselves in readiness for episodes of embarrassment, affection, misfortune, deceit, confusion, isolation, warmth, adventure, fear, concealment, pleasure, surprise, insult, and always possible deportation. So this acknowledgement that this is an, an emotional uh, endeavour, together with the kind of importance of this reflective confessional tales and ethnographies, means that the accounts of emotion in the research process should be particularly available. But as I'll go on to talk about, there's something a bit odd about this. So I think that firstly, as Yvonne has also said, that these are relatively rare. But when they also happen, when people talk about emotion, they do it in a curiously muted kind of way. And I think that these accounts of emotion are also structured by informal, unspoken assumptions about the research enterprise and the kind of emotional research that produces good, authentic research, which, again, I think raises some ethical problems. And just to say again that these are early thoughts and observations, and I'd really like to know what you think, but also to say that if these are problems, I have no idea what to do about them. So, um, uh, but just to kind of raise them now. Now, I'm going to talk about these issues through looking at field notes. So first of all, I'll just say a little bit more about what the research actually involved. So our brief from the Home Office was very broad. It was, has the inquiry had an impact on policing in England and Wales or not? So we looked at the inquiry itself to try and work out, well, how do we start looking at this? What is it we should do? And we decided it had to be a study of policing in action because at the heart of the inquiry, running all the way through it, was this idea of institutional racism, which is that routine practices could inadvertently disadvantage particular groups. So we need to have look at what this was like in action. How did the police work with local communities, particularly minority communities? What kind of work was being done? Why? What do police officers think about it? We wanted to look at the effects of policing, so we worked in those communities too um, and found out what they thought about it. But we also looked at how police staff work with each other because one of the key thrusts of the Lawrence Inquiry was that non-discriminatory practices should govern all aspects of policing. So in other words, how police officers talked and felt about each other as well. So the structure looked of our study looked a little bit... Uh, I think this works. No, no, like this. This was the main part of the study. Um, this is the bit that I did. This was ethnographic research. We tested it out in four pilot sites just for a couple of weeks and then worked in four areas for about four or five months at a time. Um, we also did a case study of murder investigation to see how whether that had changed since the Lawrence inquiry or not, because obviously this was a failed murder investigation. We did that in London. 
And we did a large quantitative survey too, and we did that for political reasons, which um, I can talk about at the end. Um, now, the, the sites that we, we looked at um, were varied in terms of whether they were urban or rural, they were across <coughs> England and Wales. We looked at um, demographics, so the size and makeup of different minority ethnic populations and so on, so we could try and get a kind of diversity of experience in different contexts there. So what this meant was, for two years, I sat in the back of police cars. Um, I shadowed police officers on all the, the jobs they did, all their major roles. I worked all kinds of different shifts. I tried to understand what they did and why they did it, and I spent my time talking to them about their experiences and the views of the communities they worked in and the Lawrence Inquiry. And I was very open about this. I sat in the cars and I wrote notes um, openly. And then I wrote them up into proper text. I've actually got some of it here. So this is a day's research. So it's written um, like a kind of diary, but in full text. Um, and I circulated them among my colleagues. Now, there's a methodological point here as well, which is that these are clearly, the data I'm going to show you, is clearly written for an audience, um, my senior colleagues. I'm trying to make them laugh quite often. And on rare occasions, one of which I will show you, I address them directly. Okay. Now, before I talk about the data and the research, I just want to make two provisos. And the first is to say that I was, during this research, generally made to feel incredibly welcome. And I met some extraordinary and sensitive and kind and committed people doing some properly radical work. And I'm not talking about them today, because... The times when that wasn't the case is the times these problems of doing this research actually came into focus. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is that I'm, I feel I need to apologise for is that I'm talking about trying to <coughs> blend into a particular cultural context, in other words, police culture, and many of the difficult, problematic aspects of it. Now, police culture has become shorthand for all the problematic sort of thing, discriminatory aspects of policing. And there's a real self-consciousness about this term police culture in the police service. But I think it's important to make clear that there's not an atmosphere of straightforward acceptance there. And just to illustrate this, um, this was just a little, a little glimpse of how, how kind of complex this idea of culture is within the police service. I'm on a shift here. Um, the inspector of this particular police team, it's in London, is, is leaving. And someone has to try and organise a collection and buy him a leaving present. And this is a little kind of um, a little conversation. So Jack, who's the long-serving police officer, and I go into the yard for another cigarette with a sergeant and a female police officer called Rita. And they talk about organising the collection for the leaving present. Jack tells Rita to organise it and she says she doesn't want to. And then there's this exchange. Jack says, it's got to be you or Lucy or Sally. They're the only women officers on a team of about 25 people. And she says, why? And he says, because it just is. And she says, no, Why? And he says, because you're so good at persuading people to part with their money, you bat your eyelashes. And she says, you're not helping. And he says, OK, it's because you're girls. It's just the way it is. I didn't make the rules. And she gives up and says she's going to buy the present. Now, I think this is interesting for a number of reasons. And it's partly because there is this overwhelming sense that these rules, this police culture actually exists. But the way that people position themselves against these rules is actually very, very, very complicated and often a source of really quite significant discomfort. And it is challenged, and perhaps increasingly challenged, but there's still the dominant culture in the organisation. So I just want to make it quite clear, I suppose, that I'm by no means suggesting that people get absorbed unproblematically um, into this kind of slightly tricky atmosphere, which I'll talk about in a bit. So what does it actually feel like to be an outsider in the police service? 
Well, I had never done any research in the police before. I didn't know what it was like. I was completely naive. And if you are like me and you never walked into a police station before, you notice various things, at least I noticed various things. And the first is the profile of the force. So um, this was my first police service I worked in was in a London borough. Um, There's about 25 people in each police team. And you notice immediately it is overwhelmingly white. It's male. People self-identify as working class um, and heterosexual. There are probably about three women on the team of about 25 people, perhaps two or three visibly minority ethnic um, people, very few openly lesbian or gay people, particularly very few gay men. In fact, in one police service I worked in, I was told there was only one gay man in the entire police service. And in another police service, I was told there were no gay men at all. Now, obviously, that's not the case. It tells you something quite interesting. But the point for here is that as a woman, you're very visible doing this research. The second thing is that it is hugely hierarchical in a way that I'd never encountered before. So the rank above you is sir. There's very little moving between the ranks. A police officer told me the sergeant is God. And there's a tea-making ritual which I encountered in every single police station whereby the probationers get given the key to the tea cupboard and have to make the tea, and then it's given out in order of service. So it's given out to the um, inspector, first of all, he gets his cup of tea, then the sergeant, then the area drivers, who are the ones that arrive in really fast cars because they've got all kinds of status that other people don't, and so on. So as a researcher, this is slightly interesting. I mean, if, if I want to fit in, where do I get my tea? What do I do? And sometimes I actually made the tea to see what would happen. So it's trying to be aware about how this hierarchical structure actually works and where you fit in it. Now, the other thing I know you notice immediately is something which is described often as team feeling. It's like being at school, very like being at school, actually. And police officers often talk about this and say it's because they have to rely on each other in different situ- difficult situations. And I think that's romanticising. I think it's about seeing the public as other and getting a closer sense of, of themselves as a unit as a result. But also police officers spend a lot of time with each other there's, um, they have briefings in the morning, they have meals together, there's a, they're in radio contact all day. There's lots of affairs between teams. Obviously, not everyone feels like they're part of that team, and that was interesting for us. But as a result, there's lots of gossip and lots of rumour about each other, about people on their patch. I think, actually, intelligence gathering um, is a form of institutionalised gossip. It seemed to me that's really what that's about. But also there's gossip about me. So how do I manage that? And there is an undercurrent of racism, sexism and homophobia. Now, what we found in our research was that while there was no longer explicitly racist, overtly racist language, there wasn't the same scrutiny of other forms of discriminatory language, like homophobia and sexism, but there was also an undercurrent of discrimination. So women officers in particular described a stifling sexual undercurrent where they felt excluded and marginalised, working harder than men to prove themselves, sexualised, flirted with, and so on. So gender was always an issue. It's in the routine fabric of policing. Women officers are always girls, for example. Women's work, particular kinds of work, um, is described as pink and fluffy. So as a researcher, you are never genderless. So my gender was always an issue doing this research. So for me, coming into this, the dynamics of blending in are actually very complex. So I was an outsider in two ways. On the one hand, I was hugely powerless here. 
I'm a woman, or a lady, more to the point, and I was therefore different. So I had different treatment. I had doors open for me. People would apologise for swearing in front of me. Um, there was constant flirting, sometimes not at all subtle, so you'd walk into custody with a sergeant and they'd say, oh, got this one for soliciting. Um, and I was an outsider, so I'm not part of the team. So I can be marginalised, I can be undermined, I can be held back from what's going on. So that's the one hand. But on the other hand, I'm also hugely threatening and powerful doing this research. That unlike anyone else, I can move between the ranks. I'm not part of this hierarchy. So it made people very anxious. What's she going to say? What's she hearing? I'm also an academic. I'm doing research for the Home Office. Um, I became known as the lady from the Home Office and all the implicit notions of class that that involves. And also I'm doing this bit of research which is about the impact of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, which, as I said, had generated huge amounts of anger and resentment in police services throughout England and Wales, we found, but particularly in London. So the impact of this really couldn't be overstated. So, in essence, I made everyone very uncomfortable. And what this meant was this idea of being accepted became particularly important, and this is partly because... Obviously, you want to get on. It's not very nice. It's horrible if people won't talk to you. But also there's a practical thing here, which is that I need to have access to organisational life. I need people to be comfortable enough around me to talk. And while I obviously had official access, there's a researcher coming and you need to accommodate her, um, this obviously has to be constantly negotiated. Police officers can be told, you have to have this research in the car. It's a hierarchical organisation. They have to have me in there. But they don't have to talk to me. And in the importance of that, um, of getting it right, in this context where there's lots of gossip and rumour, is that if I do something wrong, people don't want to talk to me, and I'm in the outsider position, it shuts down access to everyone else as well. So it's precarious. Now, what I found is that there is a process of becoming accepted, which involves a period of testing. Now, at its simplest, what that would look like is you'd be driving around and one of the officers would suddenly, talking about paperwork or the weather or something, and someone would suddenly say, what did you say you did again? And depending on how well I explain myself, I'd start getting a very different kind of information. And this was actually explicit to me sometimes. So in, in one team I worked in, the first two officers I went out with all day were very cagey and gradually they warmed up. And at the end of the day, they said, well, Anna, you know, you don't know someone. You could see it in parade, which is the morning meeting. We all thought, who's she? What does she want? But I have to say, it's really been quite pleasant, they said. And the good thing about that is that then they said, don't worry, we'll tell everyone. And I thought, well, you know, thank God. But that just goes to show how precarious my position was. Now, the problem is what does testing actually involve and what does it mean to pass? And this is my first problem, really. Um, of course, you know, the moment at which you feel yourself to be tested and you feel that there's barriers there is a really interesting source of information. And it's often written about in police ethnographies. as they call, The term that people use, it, they use is, is an initiation ceremonies. And that's the wrong terminology because it implies that once you've passed, you're in. And the problematic moment is the actual test. But actually, I think there's continual problems in actually passing this ceremony. Does it mean that you become part of behavioural values you feel uncomfortable with? By passing, are you actually helping sustain that behaviour? And if that behaviour is the focus of your research, are you actually stitching up your subjects? Now, just to explain that, um, there's really two forms of testing I want to talk about today. And one of them is humour. Can I take a joke or not? 
Now, I found during my search that police officers are funny. They are really funny. There's um, a, a deadpan sarcasm, which just I, f- I found hilarious. And jokes are hugely important culturally as well. It's a particular kind of banter or teasing, described as piss-taking. It's, um, it, people, officers talked about it as bringing them all together. And actually, it's one of the first things that people told me about changes after the Lawrence Inquiry, which is you can't have a laugh and a joke anymore. And, of course, the reason why humour is so important in police culture is that it reflects and it reinforces the dominant power relations. And you could find that not everyone had a laugh and a joke and enjoyed it as much. Women and minority ethnic staff, for example, described feeling very upset by the banter and having to develop a hard skin to deal with it and let it wash over you and so on. And it also exerts this enormous social pressure to conform. One of the inspectors said to me, you know, if you are an oddball and you're perceived to be an oddball, you'll be ridiculed. So in other words, jokes don't only just define the boundaries of what's acceptable behaviour, but they actually police the boundaries of that behaviour too. So in other words, your reactions to a joke are absolutely crucial in defining your status as an insider or an outsider. But also, taking a joke means becoming part of that sort of power relations and it's very problematic so just to give you an example I am with a team in Wales Um, a man's tried to kill himself by jumping off a bridge into a river and he didn't manage to kill himself but he got stuck in the mud at the bottom so 14 police officers now have to team together it's midnight to try and get onto the riverbank and pull him out of the mud and it's cold, and it's raining, and the riverbank's full of, mud, full of reeds, and everyone's sliding over in the mud, and everyone's a bit giddy and giggling, and the officers are really quite impressed by this chat because lots of people threaten to kill themselves but rarely try and go through it, so they're all kind of gossiping about, all credit to him, he had a good go. So um, they try and form this human ladder and pull him out, and eventually they manage to do it, and meanwhile, 15 teenage boys have lined up on the bridge and are spitting at us. So there's moments like that when you start to think, I don't get paid enough, but you get a, you get a real sense of, of what this is like. Now, we've managed to pull him out. He's in an ambulance, and we're trooping in single file along this riverbank with everyone covered in mud. And a sergeant is behind me. I've never met him before. He's got a torch, and he says, Anna, you've got mud on your bum. Now, the police officer in front has mud up to his elbows, and he turns around, and he goes, ooh, I'll rub it off for you. And the sergeant says excuse me and I thought wow this is really interesting he's going to tell him off and he points to his stripes and he says rank I go first (laughs) so obviously this tells you a lot about the setting that this is I never met these people before it's quite interesting that he's going to do that in front of his team but what do you do as a researcher now I either risk cutting myself off from the dynamics of the team um, but if I can take this joke it becomes a bit ethically difficult because I'm risking colluding and saying this is acceptable behaviour and am I encouraging this behaviour and I've managed this very badly and absolutely laughed and thought this was really funny and um, clearly passed the test because then what happened during the course of this this, with this team, they became increasingly confident um, with me, behaved worse and worse, the jokes started to focus on members of the public which were at time generally about humiliating and mocking them, particularly the victims of the crimes they were going to go and um, see and particularly female victims of crime I didn't think that was so funny now how far had I actually encouraged that by passing into these power relations and had I actually stitched up my research subjects when I left one of them said to me oh it's been really refreshing you can't normally talk to outsiders and I felt a bit ambivalent about that now another form of testing is can she take it am I one of the boys or not 
And women commonly describe this macho culture in the police where they had to work harder than anyone else to prove themselves. And one form of this is long working hours. And there's a curiosity about me. Am I going to stick it out to the end of the shifts? Am I going to go home early? And I got caught up in this, and I became determined to prove that I was hard and I was certainly not going to give up early. Now, it is 4 o'clock, one freezing winter's day in the centre of London. It's minus 4 degrees, and two men decide to rob a bank. Okay, right in the heart of London. The bank is next to a police station. It's opposite the flying squad offices, and there are two armed police cars waiting at the traffic lights. Me and three officers are in a police car just around the corner. So this was an interesting choice. Very quickly, the bank gets surrounded by the police, and everyone piles in. The two men who've robbed the bank get a bit excited... They climb onto the roof with all the money they've stolen, and to cause a distraction, they start throwing it in the air. And it's very windy, and cash starts flying around, and the public get very excited, and everyone leaps around trying to catch it, and the officers then have to go around asking everyone to please give it back. (laughs) And I get given some £20 notes to look after. Meanwhile, the robbers say that they've got a gun, and they've got a hostage, and now it gets really serious. And cordons are set up, and um, armed units come in, and we're pulled back from the area. Now, this was an extremely exciting 10 minutes. The men are now trapped in the bank, and there's a siege. Nothing happens. Um, We're waiting on a cordon, well away from the bank. Nothing happens for seven hours until we're relieved by the night shift at 1 o'clock in the morning. It's now about minus 10 degrees. Our police car's been cordoned off. In the car is our coats, our money, our mobile phones, our keys. We have nothing to eat. We're in intense cold. And my field notes that I'm about to show you um, are the times when I was so miserable that I actually wrote to my colleagues. And they say this. Several things. I'm going to read them to you because it's going to be teeny tiny text. It is cold. The seven hours are extremely difficult. It's utterly freezing cold. I've never been so cold in my life. After about an hour, I'm shaking so hard from the cold, my muscles go into spasm. At about seven, I walk around the block in the hope my legs will stop hurting so much. My, hand, my hands are completely numb. My pen is frozen. So even if it was appropriate to write notes, I couldn't physically do it. There is no food. We haven't had anything to eat. We haven't had lunch. I'm desperate. I can't provide anything for anyone to eat. All my belongings, including my money, are in the police cars. At one point, I'm so desperate, I start making reference to the £20 notes in my pocket, which is thrown from the roof. If I had some money, I could buy something to eat, and all I got are the £20 notes, hoping someone will tell me to spend them, which they don't, luckily. It's boring. During the siege, officers say, oh, you must have lots of things to write about. In fact, it's the opposite. It's extremely dull. Seven hours standing around these officers would usually be a really good source of information, but it's so cold, no one feels like talking. When we do, I'm so cold, I, can't, I lose a physical capacity for listening. I can't remember anything that anyone says. No one knows anything anyway. No one has any information. At 5.30, I go inside a pub to watch the news. There's a live broadcast from the siege. Who their press have better information than we do. It cemented my relationship with the team. At the time, I felt staying through the shift was important to establish my relationships, and I've no doubt this happened. There's a camaraderie established by this shared experience of being utterly, miserably uncomfortable, and I'm included in that. But the question for us is, is this worth it? I spend three days with each team before moving on. While I may earn my strikes with one, does it cross over to others? In any case, do I need to be accepted? Does it significantly affect the data? Does it matter for what we're trying to do? I don't know about that. Now, it's clear from this 
that our research strategy here, I think, was explicit, that it's important to be accepted, and you do this by exposing yourself to all aspects of the job. And if the job is uncomfortable, all the better, because what it's doing is it's, this endurance actively helps you earn your stripes. Now, it could, of course, just be a particular culture of work which we're developed within our particular team. It could do. I think it's possible. But I think it's unlikely these ideas actually come out of nowhere. And instead, I am wondering... I mean, this was a totally pointless process, I think. I think I got swept up in the dynamic. I got captivated by a cultural context. Proving myself felt important. And I'm wondering now whether there are any other pressures there too. Um... I am wondering whether this idea is connected to more deeply embedded ideas about ethnographic research and criminology. And if you look at these confessional tales, what you find throughout them is a striking normative theme in other people's writing. It's often implicit, sometimes it's explicit, that it's not just inevitable that as a researcher you will experience personal discomfort and risk if you're doing research on crime and policing, but actually researchers should experience personal discomfort and risk if you really want to understand what doing research on crime and policing is really like. And there's not much space now to talk about this stuff, but if you look at some recent police ethnographies, Louise West, Louise West Marlin's research on um, women in British police, for example, a study of culture, which is a fantastic book. Um, in her confessional tale, she chooses to focus on witnessing police violence, which, is, as she says, is a very rare thing. And she says, fear and danger in the field are important elements of research on policing if we're properly to understand police officers' working lives. Again, Monique Marks um, did a fantastic study of, um, sort of cultural transformation in policing in South Africa. And this is largely about demographics. It's largely based on statistical information, but she feels she needs to go on a few patrols. And she talks about the most terrible kind of high-risk um, experiences she has of being threatened with rape, about being shot at. And again, she makes a normative statement that confronting, she says, confronting these difficulties by getting your hands really dirty may be the only way in which to comprehend the contradictions of police change. And this idea of dirt is a, is a, is a consistent metaphor that comes up. And of course, it comes up right from sort of the, the um, Chicago school in the 20s about Robert Park's idea of getting your pants dirty. It's a rather odd idea, I think, of being contaminated by real life as kind of pure academics. And I think one of the assumptions behind it is actually this idea of discomfort. In other words, there's this dominant idea emerging that to give a real picture of policing, you need to be involved in the most precarious or uncomfortable aspects of occupational life. And this is emerging, this theme, in criminological research more generally. We've given it a name. We call it edge work. And there's a lot of very important and revealing work, and this is certainly not an argument that people shouldn't do it, um, but it just strikes me as curious, in the context of policing in particular, that this emphasis contradicts with the often acknowledged observation that, firstly, mostly policing is mundane and it is boring. Nothing very much actually happens in it. And also that these boring bits are just as important in understanding how policing works. And we don't see an equivalent prioritising of these sorts of boring stories in contemporary ethnographic accounts. And similarly, while people often talk about these sorts of initiation ceremonies or dangers or tests they're confronted with, there's very few, if any, accounts of people not passing them. This is a recording from the University of Leicester. Or just giving up, or refusing to take them, or going home. And I'm starting to wonder whether our ideas about are becoming um, part of the... These ideas are becoming part of the way we judge research, particularly on how authentic it is. In other words, to have experienced risky or difficult things makes you a more authentic researcher. You've got your pants dirty. 
and it therefore makes your research more authentic. And I think it's possible that our judgments about long hours risk and hard graft are perhaps not so different from the police's and just as gendered, but they're less clearly articulated. And the ethical implications of this strikes me as how this translates into what researchers actually do. In the context of all of this, for example, it might make it very difficult for me to say, I'm going home, I'm bored and I'm cold. I'm not sure what my colleagues would have have said, and I certainly don't think I'd be telling you this story now. Now, I know I'm running out of time, okay, because I want to talk about this last issue in relation to this, which is about the role of emotion in fieldwork. (coughs) and particularly in these judgments of authenticity. Now, one of the things that struck me during this, reading my field notes again, but also as an ethnographer, is how hugely emotional this research process is. And implicit in everything that I've said so far is emotion. That this research is difficult, it's stressful, it's lonely, it's frightening, it can be exciting, it can be hilarious, it can be mostly, often is, deeply boring and exhausting. And I've already said, you know, it's often acknowledged that ethnography is an essentially an emotional experience. Um, Merely being an outsider in an alien group is emotionally fraught. But also, crime and deviance itself is emotional. It's an emotional um, subject, substantive area of work. And there's an increasing acknowledgement that emotional responses are an important way of knowing about a setting. Um, there's Farrell and Ham in their book Ethnography at the Edge um, described it um, they, it's really in a manifesto I think their book and, and they say you know that it's we should value the insights and understandings gained from shared emotion we should explore the lived politics of pleasure and pain fear and excitement to think with the body as well as the mind now there's something that strikes me about this firstly I don't talk about it like this nor do others in their accounts of ethnography um, Secondly, people may talk about some aspects of emotion, but we don't talk about the pleasure. We talk about the pain and the difficult bits. We never talk about the fun bits and how much we enjoy it, the visceral kind of thrills of it all. I think that's interesting. But also that despite its espoused importance, that this is what we should be doing as ethnographers, it's very rare that researchers, including me, ever really address explicitly what it actually feels like to do it. And it's not even in my field notes. And again, just to to say again, this is my first job here. I'm doing some impression management here. I'm sending these notes to my senior colleagues, and I want to show them I'm a good ethnographer. And at times, I think emotion is in these notes. It's more present than others. Um, And I want to just talk finally about one incident, which I think is really interesting from this point of view, now strikes me as interesting from this point of view. And I talked about being tested, about are you one of the boys? Can you hack the long hours? Well, there's another form of this, which is about death. How do you cope with death? All police officers have got horror stories about maggots and limbs and decapitation and terrible things that have happened. And I actually think that they're deeply traumatic experiences for these officers. Um, They're often talked about as a rite of passage, but they leave kind of, you know, really difficult kind of scars, actually. And I experienced quite a lot of this stuff, death, And as a rather person with a rather sensitive disposition, I found this very difficult. And I had a lot of bad luck in my first police service in that I saw three very nasty deaths in the space of four days. I'd never seen a dead body before. And this was actually the second one. This was a very nasty accident. And it brought together a lot of the problems that I've been talking about, about blending in with these complex dynamics between me as a researcher and the officers I'm researching being threatening simultaneously as powerless 
and feeling as a result this enormous pressure to show I can handle it. Now, I'm very curious, looking at these now, about the way that I've chosen to talk about it. So the incident is this. There is a young woman cyclist who's been knocked off her bike. Um, she's been, if anyone here cycles, by the way, be very careful about your left-hand turns. That's where you end up dead, so really be careful. You get drawn under by lorries. Anyway, it's horrible. This was a lorry carrying a cement mixer, so this is, I'm evangelic about this. Be careful with your left-hand turns. Now, the officers I was shadowing were first on the scene. Um, she died shortly after we arrived. And I want to just tell you this story three ways. It's the last thing that I do. Okay. First way I want to tell you is show you what my field notes say. Now, they're lengthy, but I've edited them out, but I just want to kind of talk you through what they'd say a bit. So, when we arrive, there are already two officers on the scene kneeling by a young woman lying on the ground. She's clearly in a bad way. Her legs are bent at odd angles. Her face is on one side on the tarmac and looks unusually flattened. Her mouth is open and some of her teeth are missing. The ground is covered with bright scarlet blood. But apparently it's this colour when it's aortal. And it's obvious from my notes, I am shocked. I've no idea why I'm standing so close to the accident, how I got there, how long I've been there. But I'm suddenly aware that I'm watching someone die and this feels highly intimate and intrusive. So I cross the road and I stand on the opposite corner. More fire engines arrive and they set up a tarpaulin across two street lamps. There are now about 10 uniformed people watching the doctors massage the woman's heart. It's now clear that she's dead. The doctors have given up. She's covered with a blanket. There's a group of officers nearby. One of them calls me over. The only ID the woman had on her was an NUS card. It turns out she was a student at LSE where I was working. One of the officers asks me if I can find out her next of kin. I'm shocked by this, but I say I think I should be able to. So I'm obviously deeply shocked and asked to be taken part in this incident. Um, but it, then some interesting things appear in my notes. That it appears that I suddenly appears that I'm a researcher from the Home Office doing a politically sensitive bit of research on the management of major incidents. This is a major incident described in the police service as a major incident, like a murder. I'm watching this major incident unfold, and the new inspector is very flustered and he's very anxious, and it's, he's incredibly defensive. He feels his leadership is under scrutiny by me as this researcher on the Stephen Lawrence inquiry study. He comes up, talks to me, and he says, I ask how he's feeling, and he's, he feels he's under scrutiny. He says, the sergeant had been so firmly in control, perhaps I didn't need to be there. He says, confusion about the lines of authority had been an issue in the Lawrence inquiry, so he's aware I'm judging him on this basis, which I actually wasn't at all. He says, was it clear to me who was in charge? I say it was. He says, I'm in charge. I'm in charge of the incident. So I'm hugely threatening at this point. But at the same time, it was made quite clear to me, I felt, that I wasn't one of the boys. I'm freezing and I sniff from the cold. Everyone looks at me. The sergeant asks, are you okay? I say, I am. I'm just cold. Are you sure? You might have all those qualifications, but nothing prepares you for this. I then say, that puts me in my place. The PC says, would you like to get in the back of the van? There's then an onslaught of people asking if I'm feeling all right. Several PCs, a traffic officer, an ambulance driver, do you want to get in the van? Go on, get in the van. I think I feel okay, but I'm starving hungry. I hadn't eaten since four in the morning and it's freezing. However, all this attention is humiliating. It's public and in the light of the sergeant's intervention, it looks like I can't handle police business. For instance, the ambulance driver holds my arms and looks into my eyes. Are you okay? We do this all the time, but every now and then you see someone that doesn't look right and you think, uh-oh. So it's clear from my notes that I felt this was a test. It was a way of minimising the threat that I represented. Implicit in this was, you can't do our job, so you're in no position to criticise. And I felt 
the only possible response was to show that I could cope. So that's the story my notes tell. Now, the second story is where telling this story is to how I normally talk about this, to my students and, and so on, which is about reflexivity and the role of researcher in generating research and about emotion as a way of knowing, which is that, of course, this is possibly just incredibly kind, that I really did want to get in the van. And what's interesting about this is that I interpreted it as a test. In other words... In the context of my own perceptions of discrimination and being marginalised, that my gender was an issue, I felt that something else was going on here. So in other words, having lived through people joking about rubbing my bum or going into the custody seat suite and saying, I've got this one for soliciting, I felt they were isolating me from my, because of my gender and because of my position as an outsider. And of course, they could quite possibly deny that. And what's important, I think about this, in this version of the story, is that it, my responses tell us something about what it's like to be a woman in the police service, what discrimination actually feels like. That it's not outrageous, gross comments necessarily, but it's forms of behaviour that are intangible, which are extremely difficult to articulate. And it also, I think importantly, tells us something about the way that previous experiences form a lens through which behaviour is understood and the way that affects your expectations. And this is exactly what police officers tell us. So this is the only gay male officer in this particular police service, apparently, I was told. Um, he's described his experiences like this. It's a drip, drip, loads of silly and significant things, which if you didn't write it down, you'd probably forget. But as it mounts up, you think, is it me? Am I being paranoid? Am I being too sensitive? You know, because it's summer, people wear less clothing and a girl walks past the window and everyone shouts, window, even the sergeant. There's that sense of exclusion they don't know about, they don't feel. It's designed to exclude you and make their statement about who they are. And of course, you know, it's not designed to exclude you, but he feels, may, well, it may not be, but he feels that it is. So there's an emotional knowledge clearly indicated in this way of knowing about this setting. But there's a third story, which I don't tell which is implicit in my notes, but not explicit anywhere, which is about emotion, which is that this was hugely stressful and upsetting, and I was feeling excluded and marginalised and observed while desperately trying to placate, while also experiencing this terrible emotional experience of seeing this accident. Things my notes don't say. This was a woman, well, too bit, that this is a woman from my university. She looked like me. She was my age. I know my most vivid memory of this is that when they cut off her clothing, she was a very sort of slim woman. And I first thought was, thank God she's a boy, because I was seeing this kind of reflection of myself in this woman. Now, this story of this type doesn't feature. I've talked about it here, but I don't talk about it to my students. I've left it out of my notes. So the question is why? Why is that? Now, partly it's a question of perhaps of privacy. I don't think it's any of your business how I felt. could be. It's also a question of personal style, you know, that I want to reflect, not emote, perhaps. Though arguably I think you can reveal the impact of a research in a thoughtful and restrained way as well. Um, I'm not absolutely not suggesting that researchers should emote like this. I think it's a question of, you know, individual style. But I just want to observe that in the context of this, you know, espoused importance of emotional reflection, that the infrequency of explicit accounts of actually the emotional impact of fieldwork is actually very interesting, particularly as in other forms of writing it's much clearer, for example in journalism. So I am wondering whether it's felt to be inappropriate in other ways. I think this is where I probably have some connection with, with what Yvonne has been saying here. Is it somehow not academic enough? And 
Something that's resonated very strongly to me is the work of Howard Becker, who wrote a brilliant book called Writing for Social Scientists. And if you haven't read it, you should immediately do it. It's just lovely. And what it's about is why academics are such bad writers, why our work is so turgid and boring. And he says that it comes from an anxiety about what makes us special. What's the difference between an academic and a layperson? What's our claims to expert knowledge? We're not kind of natural scientists. We're interested in people. Well, so is everyone, aren't they? And he says, well, if we write in a classy way, we show that we're generally smarter than ordinary people. We have finer sensibilities. We understand things they don't and thus should be believed. In other words, what he says is that we use fancy esoteric language as our claim to authority. And I'm wondering whether this distance from ordinary feeling is in part springing from this same anxiety. In other words, we need to feel differently from ordinary people. In other words, feel in a different way. And as a result, we talk about emotions in this distanced, artificial way. We don't feel emotion. We know about emotionality, for example. And again, I wonder if this is an unarticulate, unarticulated, inarticulated convention, in that for authentic research as academics, we need to show just enough emotion. In other words, we need to express just enough emotion to show that we know how to show empathy, that we are reflexive, and so on, which is a central part of this idea of authenticity, but no more than that. Now, I think the trouble with this is that what worries me is if we are silencing the emotional intensity of the research experience, are we effectively denying it? And in the context of this apparent convention that appears to construct authentic, good research as something uncomfortable and risky, I think this is rather troubling both in how we do research and also how we teach others to do it as well. And I'll leave it there. This is a recording from the University of Leicester. For more information, please visit le.ac.uk.